0: Welcome to Always Authors, the literary podcast that features two authors in candid conversation. On this episode, we're excited to bring you Bryn Turnbull and Madeline Martin. Bryn Turnbull's debut novel, The Woman Before Wallace, was named one of the top 10 best-selling works of Canadian fiction for 2020 and became an international bestseller. Her second novel, The Last Grand Duchess, came out in February 2022 and spent eight weeks on the Globe and Mail and Toronto Star bestseller lists. Her third novel, The Paris Deception, was published in May 2023. Madeline Martin is a New York Times and international bestselling author of historical fiction and historical romance. Following her very successful novels, The Last Bookshop in London and The Librarian Spy, her newest novel, The Keeper of Hidden Books, comes out in August. If you love historical fiction, you're in for a treat. Inspiration starts now.
1: Hey Brynn, how's it going? Hi Madeline, so nice (laughs) to see you. So nice to chat with you. I know, this is so exciting to get to do this.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I feel like this is, uh, sorry, I was just gonna say, I feel like, um, you know, when we do, we share an agent just for for listeners, and we occasionally do um, over the pandemic. We did drink, like sort of like a drink Zoom session every once in a while, catching up with all of our author friends. And this kind of feels like that.
1: <laughs> it really does. This is so fun, <laughs> although with more coffee and less alcohol.
2: <laughs> exactly. I know. I'm I'm on the vitamin C train today. That's uh that's what I'm having. That is yeah. not
1: as exciting as alcohol. <laughs> not as exciting.
2: Not nearly as exciting.
1: <laughs> are joining us we are going to be chatting about um kind of a similar theme here really and that's um both of us have written world war ii or books set during world war ii really talking about uh, the nazi occupation brins is set in france mine is set in poland and um and really how the occupation impacted culture and what people were doing to uh, fight against that so um and i had the pleasure of getting to read brin's um the paris deception and it was absolutely incredible. So, Brain, why don't you <laughs> talk about that a little bit? Yeah, for sure. Well, I mean, I, I was able to read uh, your book,
2: Madeline, um, The Keeper of Hidden Books, which was absolutely spectacular. It had me in tears multiple times over the course of reading it, which um, I, I, I'm i not an easy crier, so uh, well done. I, I thought it was just unbelievable. Um, Yeah, so I mean, so my book, uh, The Paris Deception, it is about art theft and forgery in Nazi-occupied Paris. Um, It has two protagonists. The first, uh, her name is Sophie. She is a young German woman, actually, who has left Germany behind, moved to Paris, shed her German identity, and um, just is kind of trying to get through life as an art restorer. Uh, Today, we would call them a conservator. Uh, Until, of course, the Nazis roll down the Rue de Rivoli with their tanks, and um, all of a sudden, Sophie's world is turned upside down by the occupation and by the fact that the Nazis, through this art commission called the ERR, the Einsatzstab Reichsleiter Rosenberg, um, started looting all of this art from Jewish families, art, religious heirlooms, all sorts of things, uh, books, of course, um, from Jewish families. And she ends up working in this museum where all of this art is being taken and being stored. And she realizes that this art is under threat um, from the Nazis, um, from the Germans who are using this museum basically as a, almost as like a shopping mall. They would come in, pick which art they liked um, and ship it back to Germany on trains and with no kind of, you know, No care for the fact that the art was actually owned by other families and they just looted it. And even to this day, there is art that has not been recovered um, by the descendants of those who originally owned it. So that really is where my book is set. Uh, It's set in this museum, and this young woman, Sophie, who teams up with her um, estranged sister in law to do something about this art uh, in the museum, and they decide to replace pieces of from from these collections with uh very clever forgeries so um yeah it's as i said art theft and forgery um and how about yours madeline
1: so uh with the keeper of hidden books i was really inspired by this incredible research uh information that i found while researching um about the public librarians of warsaw so when the Nazis first came in, they really wanted to completely get rid of all um, culture, like all Polish culture, all Jewish culture. So you know they weren't allowed to play their um, patriotic songs. All the museums were closed. All the libraries started to be closed as well. And um, and so these librarians actually went through, and they were saving books from being looted. They were saving books from destruction, and they even had like a secret hidden warehouse where they would store some of these forbidden books and, um, and when the libraries closed, they actually had secret libraries that they were operating under the noses of the Nazis. This happened not only outside of the ghetto, but also even inside of the ghetto. Um, people who would come into the ghetto and have their own personal library with them would put them into suitcases and bring them around to people to sort of check out so that they could sort of share the wealth of having books to be able to, uh, yeah. to kind of, yeah, exactly. And there was one woman um who was named uh miss tumkin um Basha tumkin and she created this it was the initially she did it under the auspices of having like an orphanage for children to be able to go to like kind of like a playhouse for them to go to in the um, in the ghetto but really it was a secret children's library and there were these shelves that were made that could be like a dollhouse on one side and when you flipped it it was books on the other and, um, and that's because initially, libraries were not allowed. Eventually, they ended up being allowed in the ghetto, sort of toward the end, before it was liquidated. But, um, but for a time being, that, that was a wonderful way for people to still be able to explore reading and books. And um, she focused not only on Polish books, but also Yiddish books, because there were a lot of kids who came into the ghetto who didn't speak Yiddish. And so she wanted to teach them Yiddish. So usually, the kids would get to check out one Polish book and one Yiddish book. And um, and so, and that um, is, uh, I guess, I'm getting like <laughs> telling a little bit too much. I was trying to go into it and then I was like, oh wait, I'm gonna tell too much of the book. Um, <laughs> but so, you know, one thing I really found fascinating with my research was the Polish underground state was one of the most, comp- like um, one of the most composed resistance groups in all of Europe. They had underground schools once all, because after a while the schools closed down And then when they opened, they had no libraries and they were basically being fed um, propaganda. And so they had underground schools that opened up um, because they weren't allowed to go past the fourth grade. They weren't allowed to speak. um, They weren't allowed to count over 500. They had all of these incredible rules. They basically just wanted to raise slaves, uh, the Germans, as far as um, the Polish kids. So they had underground schools that they created. They even had an underground court system where they would try collaborators and Nazis and abstantia and they would have people who would go out and execute um, when people were found guilty. It was That's really, true. really yeah, absolutely incredible. Yeah, you so, touched
2: on that in your book too. That you know, the, the court the underground court system and the underground yeah. you know, the, the underground resistance movement uh, in Poland and how yeah. how active they were.
1: It really was absolutely incredible. Well and I feel I feel like the Polish
2: experience of of the Second World War it's not as well known, I would say, as you know for example, the French experience. Right. Uh, so can you give us kind of just like a bit more of an overview of like you know when Poland was invaded, what that occupation looked like, uh, because I mean you know it really was it was a whole scale attempt to eradicate. The country and eradicate the culture, and of course, eradicate uh, Poland's Jewish population.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, you know, the whole the whole purpose of like, well, one of the reasons what they wanted to do with Poland when they took it over is they wanted to get rid of eighty-five percent of the population and use the remaining fifteen percent of the population for slave labor, and they wanted to bring Germans to live there as like a new country. And so, um, <clears throat> September 1st, 1939 is when it, where they actually attacked. And that's basically like the start of world war two. And, um, and you know, it was, it was so sad because initially they thought, okay, we just have to really hold out for like a couple of days and then, um, England and France are going to be here because a couple of days after being attacked, they said, oh, well, we're in the war now. And they waited and they waited and they waited and no help ever came. So um, with Warsaw, at a certain point, they were completely surrounded by tanks and there was basically a siege going on. There was no food for anybody. And finally, they eventually had to capitulate. But before they did, they fought so hard. Like even when the soldiers started to run out of ammunition, they they took turpentine and they spread it over the streets and they waited for the tanks to come through and they lit them on fire. They had civilians throwing burning mattresses out of windows on the troops that were coming in trying to stop them. I mean, they tried so hard all the way to the very, very end. Um, so then initially, you know, so then the Nazi occupation came in and and it was immediate, the retribution for everybody. There were mass killings, um, there were executions, there was immediate suppression of culture. Um, all the schools were immediately closed. Um, so it was it was very much immediate. And there was a lot of propaganda going on as far as they blamed Jewish the Jewish population for everything to try to get the Poles to turn against them. They would take everything away from the Poles, food and everything, and they would say, oh, it's, the Jew, it's it's the fault of the Jews for doing this. And so they were really trying to poison them against the Jewish population. And so as they started to really like ratchet things tighter with the Jewish population, they didn't have as much pushback. Um, I think because of that propaganda, but also because it was all done in like little pieces, like a little bits at a time. So it didn't feel like anything that I guess people felt like that they couldn't stand against, but at the same time, they were also being arrested and murdered and they had all of these atrocities going on as well. So they were living in complete fear for themselves as well. Um, but, and, and so that was kind of, that was kind of um, life in, in Warsaw. So it continued on for a while. And then in, uh, in 1943, they had the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising and, and they actually did fight back. The first time was successful in kind of pushing them back. And then the second time, they basically just fought to the death knowing, you know, at least we're able to fight back, at least we're kind of able to get some, some retaliation here. And then um, August 1st, 1944 was the Warsaw Uprising. And that actually lasted, they expected, again, they thought that was only going to last for just a couple of days because right on the Vistula River, which when I went there to Poland and you could see the Vistula River, it's it's like, it's so close. Um, and the Russians were there and they the Soviet Union was there, they were supposed to come over and help and they didn't. So instead of holding out for a couple of days, it ended up turning into two months worth of fighting. And eventually they ended up losing and then the Soviet Union came in and took them. Wow. So, yeah. So And I thought that you did such a beautiful job portraying uh, Nazi occupation in Paris. So why don't you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, well, you know, the
2: occupation in Paris, it was a very different, very different occupation from, you know, from what happened in Poland, because the Nazis really saw Paris as a crown jewel city. And they, they wanted it kind of to stand as a model, quote unquote, like model occupation. So mm-hmm. when they first came in, it was you know, magnanimous in victory almost. You know, they kept the museums open. They, you know, they they would, you know, pat kids' heads as they crossed the street and help little old ladies. They were told to be, the soldiers were really told to be very polite and very accommodating. And of course that changed quite quickly um, as the occupation dragged on. Um, you know, they, they did ration down the French in a way that was incredibly horrible. Um, you know, I think at one point the calorie ration, the rations were like, it was like 1200 calories a person per day. That was kind of what they were expected to subsist on. And it, you know, it certainly took its toll. And of course, with the Jewish population, um, you know, it was a slow and very hard sort of attempt to kind of eradicate, you know, that's what it was, it was an eradication. Um, But a lot of that was actually put in place by the Vichy government, Um, the Vichy government, the collaborative government in France, that took over when France fell, they were the ones actually who put in place a lot of these restrictions against, you know, against the Jewish population. And it was, you know, it was really quite horrible, because it was French people, you know, French people against French people, not only the Nazis, there was this whole other side of it as well. Um, but, you know, in terms of the book, I take us in, so, so really the book centers on this one museum, which uh, is historical, it's a historical museum, where they took all of the art that, again, they looted from from Jewish families. Because what they did, a lot of families fled uh, prior to the occupation, they knew it was coming, a lot of Jewish families left Um, A lot tried to come over to the States, uh, other parts of Europe to stay ahead of of the Germans and of the Nazis. And they left behind their possessions because they were just trying to flee with their lives. And so this art commission was set up to deal with, quote, unquote, um, you know, ownerless collections of art. So they came in and it was very much seen as like, we are safeguarding this art. We have we are dealing with it because the owners have left, and they have just <laughs> left the <laughs> collection. And, yeah, they yeah exactly like you know, yeah. no you know, no acknowledgement of the fact that they've left those collections for a very good reason. And a lot of people actually didn't you know they left them in bank vaults. They wow. left these collections in secure locations, and this commission came in and they basically they opened all the bank vaults and they you know they took all of the art they took all of the you know art furniture um again religious iconography all of this all of these possessions all of this wealth from these families um who you know who who really had no, little other choice than to leave it um and there was you know there are different kind of aspects to these collections of course art visual art is is a big one um you know, literature is another. But within the visual art um, side of things, I really wanted to focus on this one specific collection that they had, uh, and it was called Degenerate Art. The Nazis had this notion of degenerate art. And basically what it was, was art that was not a literal representation of the world. So Hitler being a failed artist, uh, he was not a good artist.
1: Um, I didn't realize that. <laughs> yes,
2: yeah, he got rejected from art school, like I think twice, it was like twice or three times. And so he had very specific notions of what art was. And he, in the 1930s, he and kind of the, the bigwigs in the Nazi party got together to form kind of what it, what was considered ideologically pure versions of art. And this ideologically pure art was, you know, good people standing in fields and pictures of mountains and, you know, just very literal classical art. And what they didn't like was anything that was more abstract. So a lot of like early 20th century, you know, cubism, impressionism, post you know, postmodern, anything that wasn't like a literal representation of the world. They hated Picasso, they hated Dolly, um, you know, Klimt, they weren't huge fans of Klimt and all of this art it represented to them something that they couldn't control right because right. if the not you know if they have built this perfect society then why would we allow art that presents a different way of thinking basically was was the idea behind it and so in the 1930s in germany what they did was they went to all of the art uh, all of the museums all the public owned art collections across germany pulled out all of this degenerate art, um, toured it around the country in a deliberately um, mean-spirited exhibition called yeah. "Entartete Kunst, de, called Degenerate Art. And after it had toured around and shown everybody what art was not meant to be, um, they piled it up in Berlin and burned it. And we're talking millions and millions of dollars worth of art. We're talking just you know, some of the greatest art of all time piled up and and destroyed. And Gosh, so, pardon,
1: it's so heartbreaking,
2: it is, it's heartbreaking. And you know, a lot of this art, you know, you think about what we could see now and what you know, we know what a lot of this art was, because it was in these public collections, and it's just gone. Um, and so, in the book in this museum, They're taking all of this art from private collections, bringing it to the museum, taking what they want from those private collections, but they also had this one room in the museum called the, um, it was called by a resistance operative who worked in the museum named Rose Vallande, who's in my book. It was called the Room of Martyrs. That's what she called it because she knew that this art, this degenerate art, it was all stored in this one room away from the regular collections, segregated from the regular collections and segregated from sort of ideologically pure art, so to speak. And that got piled in 1942 outside the museum and burned. Again, so that's the collection that my characters are trying to save because it represents so much more than just art, right? It represents a different mode of thinking. It represents ideological dissonance. It represents you know uh, freedom of thought, freedom of speech, and freedom of religion, because um, a lot of these artists were also Jewish. And yeah, it's, I, I, I found this museum. I found this room. I, you know, I heard about it and I was like, that is, I have to write about it. I have to know more, um, because of course this is, it's important, you know, it's, it's cultural, you know, like, like the books, but you know, one thing that I, you know, you, you bring up all these books in your, you know, in your novel, these books that the Nazis were suppressing, these titles that the Nazis were suppressing in Poland. And there were so many that just seemed so innocuous. Right. And why was that something, why was it threatening to them to have these works of literature amongst the population?
1: Right. You know, and, and a lot of them came to, well, some of them were because it was about the culture. You know so so like that's one of the horrible things about so many books that were destroyed especially we had this you know kaczynski library that had these amazing scholarly texts that the, the kaczynski family had accumulated for like a century and then they opened up to the general public and a lot of these books that were destroyed were originals they, there was no other book like it so that whatever was in those texts was gone forever when they were destroyed and, and it's so heartbreaking to think, you know, especially uh, if there were like historical registers and things like that, all of that data is forever lost. And, yeah. um, and a lot of those were destroyed initially in the very beginning during the siege of Warsaw when they were bombing Warsaw so heavily. And then also once the Nazis were defeated by the Soviet Union at the very end um, in 1944, out of spite, they bombed the entire city and destroyed eighty-five percent of Warsaw before they left. They literally yeah. drilled holes into buildings, shoved dynamite into those holes, and set and just blew everything up. And um, and so, you know, the books that they really started to attack, it was people who were Jewish, people who were very strongly Polish, who were you know very much of that sort of political mindset and that patriotic mindset. And you know, also books too that made Germany look weak. Um, for example, All Quiet on the Western Front. It is a German book. However, it is about a German soldier who is really discussing um, the rawness of war and the terror, and and really how you have to like push away your humanity to to be able to do the things that a soldier is required to do. It doesn't necessarily put Germany in a good light, you know. Yeah. Um, and like, for example, one of the most popular books that was read during that time was *War and Peace*, and um, Dostoyevsky. Oh no, Tolstoy. Okay. <laughs> Tolstoy's *War and Peace*, and um, you know the reason for that was because it, it really, you know, that one was more about Napoleon, and um, and that was about when you know um, Napoleon tried to go into Russia. And defeat Russia, mm-hmm. and and that was basically showing that that people who are dictators are also still people. They are they are subject to the same kind of laws of nature as everybody else. That just because they may have conquered so much of the world, that you know it doesn't mean that they're going to be able to conquer the entire world. But yeah, so you know regarding war and peace, the other part of that too is is that it showed that um, that what appears to be an undefeatable foe can in fact be defeated because there was a while there that napoleon was just on fire like he he couldn't Mm. defeat him but but russia did and so especially because you know it's an interesting sort of um history with poland and russia so russia occupied poland for 125 years prior to the end of world war one after world war one the treaty of versailles was signed in 1918 giving poland their independence they had just celebrated 20 years of independence when the nazi occupation came in and then after so you know their hope was that that soviet union would be able to come in and sort of liberate them like better the devil you know than the devil you don't and so um and so that is eventually what did happen is the soviet union did come in and defeat the germans unfortunately after the germans had defeated um you know the home army in the warsaw uprising but then once the Soviet Union came in, they were in place until 1989, really 1990. So, I mean, this entire time you have these, these, these um, Polish citizens who have been fighting for generations to have a free country. And that creates like a blazing patriotism. And that patriotism is in all of those books that they were trying so hard to ban. And those are the things that inspire hope, that inspire, like um, the ability to fight, you know, yep. that that determination to really eradicate um, this oppressor who's coming in and being able to get your country back into a sense of freedom again. Because you look at these centuries of people who have been fighting for that, and and that you know was part of it. And the other part of it too is is I and I genuinely feel this, and and you know I feel this way honestly about book banning right now. It's it's trying to get rid of a certain part of culture or society yep. that people don't agree with. And and I think one of the most egregious parts of that is that you eliminate an a possibility of empathy for those people. Because yes. when you get rid of empathy it dehumanizes them and it makes the persecution of them so much easier. And and you know, it might be kind of <laughs> I you know, I'm sure that this is probably an inflammatory thing for me to say for people who are, you know, uh, anti book burning, but or, um, book burning, book banning, but I guess it's kind of the same. Um, yeah, but, and, and that's, why, that's why it's so, it's so fundamentally important to be able to make books accessible to everybody, all kinds of books, because it teaches empathy and it teaches love. And I feel like the opposite of that is hate and prejudice. And like, why would you even want to encourage that in a society? And and obviously, I mean, Hitler was certainly fostering that with his ideals. So so true. Well, I mean, you know, uh, I I think that
2: it's it's safe to say that book banning has always, you know, there's always been a specter of book banning throughout history and it never works. It never does work because the ideas and the ideals of a diversity of voices is so much stronger yes. than the will to censor from one or from a small group and you know book book bannings culture ban you know art um, you know in the case of my book it's all it's all from that same place i think you know i think the, the i think the censorship of culture all comes from the same place and that place is fear yes it's fear of the unknown it's fear of you know it's fear of Somebody else's voice being as important, right, as anybody else's, right? And it's yeah, about absolutely. and and so it it just it rankles me so much to think that people find other voices and and you know other voices and and diversity and inclusion they find that a threat,
1: right? And it's I, yeah, it's very said, sad, I mean, yeah,
2: yeah. Like as you said. I think that you know I think that the reason we read because you know we're authors, we're both readers. I think the reason we read is to find that empathy and to find that humanity in other characters. and as authors, it's to experience that and, and to live in somebody else's shoes for the space of that novel, for the space of that project, whatever it is. And yeah, I, I, I think that that is, what re- that is what reading is at its heart, it's, it's empathy. And yes. finding that, you know, finding that humanity in somebody else, and finding their lived, you know, that shared lived experience, and so, right. yeah, I mean,
1: and an no open-mindedness way. of this acceptance and everything. Yeah, yeah, you know, it's it's interesting because when I wrote this book, um, I wrote it so I don't really develop my characters until I've done significant re- research on the country. Yeah. I want to find out about the history of their economy, of their government, you know, just everything. Mm-hmm. And, and then that's when I sort of create my character. So when I really discovered how hard Poland had fought for freedom for so many centuries, I realized I needed my character to be rebellious. I really wanted yeah. her to be rebellious, but of course, you know, me and my books about books, I really wanted her to be a reader too. And so I thought, you know, what would a rebellious reader do? Well, of course she would read the books that Hitler's burning in Germany and so what better way to do that than with friends and so that's sort of why i came up with this banned book club you know where they're reading these banned books and they're discussing them but um i didn't even realize the timeliness of it until i actually got my galleys and because you know i didn't write this book with an agenda to talk about um about the banned books specifically Mm -hmm. i did do it to talk about the librarians and and what they were doing but um but i was reading an article and um procrastinating and and <laughs> happened to see I know, you know, when we get our galleys and you have to do the read through, I was like, Oh, I'm just gonna read, you know, what's on Yahoo News. So I was just reading through it and they were talking about, you know, books that were being banned. And um, and I was like, Gosh, it's horrible that this is happening again and, and then I'm reading through my manuscript and I'm like, Hello, Madeline, you've literally written your entire book about books that are being banned and oh my gosh, just the correlation between almost 100 years ago and now. And um, and it really was scary, honestly, yeah. um, seeing that and how sadly timely it really was. So, um, and I know like with you, you actually had read about that and you wanted to write about the degenerate art that was being, I mean, I wanna say persecuted, but it, it really was. I mean, the idea yeah. of that freedom of artistic, like artistic, artistic expression. expression thought,
2: exactly. Yeah, yeah no,
1: I I found out, I can't even remember
2: where I found out about the Degenerate Art Movement. But I, like I heard, so the book starts with that initial burning in Berlin and my character Sophie is, is there to witness it. And I honestly can't remember when I heard about the Degenerate Art Movement, but it stuck with me, like just the notion that, People would burn art, that they would find pictures and paintings and sculptures so threatening to, you know, ed- that the only way that they could countenance dealing with them is is through hate, through hateful means. Like art is meant to open up discourses. You don't have to agree with every piece of art. You don't have to like every piece of art. Right. But if you don't like it, challenge it intellectually. Don't just... You know, don't chuck it in a fire. Don't I know. you know? Don't, like, I don't like that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's you know that's to me that's you know that's a response of a coward. Yes, it's not Absolutely. it's not engaging. If you don't you know if you don't agree with someone's aesthetic, explain why. Don't right. just say it's bad.
1: Right. Exactly. Yeah, because that is a very ignorant approach. I mean, explaining why you don't like something—that's hard.
2: <laughs> yeah. Well, because you know, because, because it also, it. yeah, and it also challenges your. You know, it challenges you because you have to kind of grapple with the notion of why do I find this piece of art threatening? Right. Why do I find it scary? If you're not right. if you're not willing to confront that within yourself, you know, get out of the museum.
1: Yeah. Exactly. So now speaking of museum, one of the things that I really enjoyed about yours was because, you know, with the restoration of the artwork, I felt like you did such an amazing job. Like, I don't don't know very much about the art world aside (laughs) from, you know, like I love Carpaggio and and like, you know, I've got like my favorite artists and everything. Um, So I don't really actually know a lot about the restoration aside from like really what I read in your book. And you did such a great job. So how like what kind of what was your research like looking into this? Because I know you had to do historic restoration, which is even more difficult than doing contemporary restoration. So, you know, I'm sure that
2: you've dealt with this before, Madeline. But when I, you know, when I came up with the idea for this book, I wrote out my outline and kind of yada yada the specifics, right? It's like, I know that this is what I want to deal with. I know that this is a collection I want to deal with. I want a character who's in the museum, who has a reason to be in the museum, to give us eyes and ears on what's happening with the ERR. Oh, art restoration. That sounds good. She'll be an art restorer. And then I sell the book and then I realize, oh, I have to learn about what that is like and what that <laughs> what that job is and and so first of all you know i went to the books i've got all of these books i'm looking at them right now on my bookshelf um that are contemporary to the 1940s accounts of art restoration and the tools that you need and you know everything that would have been at my character's disposal but i was kind of knocking my head against a wall because art restoration is one of those things that like you can only learn so much from the book about it. Right. So I was kind of knocking my head against a wall trying to figure it out. And I was having a chat with my old university roommate, telling her, you know, this is my character, this is my book, this is what I'm trying to figure out. She goes, Oh, a friend I went to high school with is an art restorer in New York. Do you want me to put you in touch with her? I'm like, Gold. Yes, <laughs> so through this art restorer, who is just like the loveliest person, she put me in touch with art restorers at the Met. Moma and the Museum of Natural History, so I got to do tours. Oh yeah, no, I got to go to Moma's art, like their conservation lab, in the new tower before like it even was open. I think it was opening that night to the public. Like the museum. Oh
1: my gosh, brain, that's incredible. It was amazing,
2: and you know, I got to I got to kind of go up close to works of art, and and these conservators were explaining to me what actually goes into the process and what they're doing you know they had a van gogh there like right there it was unbelievable and they were in the middle of restoring it and she she walked me through she's like okay this is what we're doing there's you can tell that the piece has been punctured here and this is you can tell by the way that the cracks had formed that it's a puncture as opposed to it had been rolled or it had been this or it had been that but also just learning about kind of the ethics and the evolution of art conservation was really really fascinating because like in the 1940s it was a vi- it was very much like in its infancy still as a you know as a profession
0: mm-hmm. and it was a
2: kind of thing where like you know it was more of a trade almost like you know your dad would be an art restorer so you'd be an art restorer like teach right. you the tools of the trade or whatever and and back then the notion was to make a piece of art look pretty right like if the art you know if if that painting had been ripped it was cover up the rip and while you're going at it, you know, that character, it's a little too naked, like might as well just like (laughs) throw a little fig leaf over it. Like restorers literally would do this. Yeah, I know it's like ridiculous. But nowadays art restoration is all about like acknowledging the full history of a piece of art because that art has lived a whole life from the time that it left the artist's easel right? It spent time in the museum, it spent time, you know, on somebody's walls, it, you know, at one point, maybe it fell, and there's a crack down it, it's not about getting rid of that piece's history, because all of this now, it's called the provenance of that work of art, right? Like, all of that gets built into the provenance. So you're not necessarily, you know, yes, you want to make it look pretty, and you want to kind of stop it from degrading. um, And that's now kind of the goal but it's not about like just get rid of the thing and make it look nice. It's acknowledging the entire history of a work of art. And that's one of the things um, nowadays that all of these different art communities are really dealing with because a lot of this art that the Nazis stole from families has not been recovered. It's still gone. And so, you know, there are all of these different organizations, the uh, Monuments Men and Women Foundation for one, uh, the ERR project is another. Um, there are all of these organizations that are working to figure out the, you know, figure out what these works of art are. They know pretty much all of these collections and try to restore them to the families that they, you know, that they were taken from. Right. And in a lot of cases that art has ended up in either private collections, it's ended up in museums. Every once in a while you'll see a, you know, you'll see a news article come up about a piece of art that is being yeah the woman in gold perfect example uh there was a movie a couple years ago Helen Mirren and Ryan Reynolds were in it and it was about the it was about restituting this Klimt piece to the family that it was taken from so we're still seeing this today and that's all now part of that work of art's provenance and that's all you know that's all kind of built into the history of that work of art and it's an ugly history, but the way to make it right is to restore, is to return it to its family, to return it to the, uh, you know, to the descendants of that person that it had been stolen from.
1: And it's amazing that they're still doing that today, that it's not just like, oh, it's been so long, you know, whatever, we're just gonna call it a museum's piece now and move on. You know, it's really amazing that they are still putting so much effort into trying to find its location. I know, um, in poland when i was because i I went on a um, research trip there and while i was there um one of the women who was doing our tours was talking about this and i wish i could remember all the details but um he basically had a book that he kept an inventory of all of the art that was leaving and i think he even wrote like a number or something like on the on the can like on the back of the canvas like Mm -hmm. um, like on the frame Um, But anyways, the fact that he had kept this incredibly detailed log had been so integral in returning these art pieces back to their original families, you know, the people that they had been stolen from. And and that was just so incredibly brave of him to do. I mean, you know, it seems like something so small, but I don't think people can appreciate the incredible danger that something so small like that really could put somebody in in a, in a Nazi-occupied zone where they would just kill you without even thinking. Um, well,
2: exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And there's so there's a character in my book, uh, Rose Valland, this real uh, resistance operative who worked in the Jeu Pont Museum where the ERR was. And that was what she did. She kept these detailed records of all of the art that was passing through the museum. And so, you know, uh, this website, the ERR project, a lot of what they know about these works of art and these collections that were stolen, a lot of that came from Rose because uh, she was able to kind of duplicate all of her records. And she also was able to hide the fact that she spoke German. She concealed it from the Nazis entirely. They had no clue. She was there for four years. She kept getting fired and like working her way back into the museum to take care of these works of art. And, you know, it, it the, the amount of courage that that would take, the amount of, you know, the amount of just sheer iron will and determination because as you said, like the, you know, the, the penalty for this was getting shot. The penalty for this was, was death. And I mean, you know, I think one of the things that I love about both of our books is that like resistance takes many different forms, Right. you know, Uh, like it's not only about, you know, sort of you know it's not only about taking up arms which of course happened and you know there are so many brave characters in your book who do but it's also about resisting in these other ways resisting in terms of protecting and you know and, and and trying trying to do what you can within your sphere of influence
1: right absolutely whether it's you know hiding away pieces of art or doing what you can to kind of sneak it out from the noses of the Nazis or running yeah. a secret library. I mean, you know, these yeah. little acts of defiance, It's. I think these little acts of defiance are so important because they really give so much hope. And I think that in mm-hmm. times such as they're so dark as like Nazi occupation, um, they're, they're just, they're, you need all the hope that you can get. And it's almost like a promise that there will be a tomorrow there's a promise that you can take those paintings out and let the world see them again and know that people have done their level best to make those survive forever and um and there really is just something so beautiful and selfless about the people who risked so much to do that
2: i agree absolutely the one thing i did want to ask you like what is your process of Pulling together this remarkable story, like like where do you start? You said you know research, is a big part of it, but like walk me through the process of building an amazing Madeline Martin book.
1: Uh, well, thank you. Well, I will say this particular book, because um, most of my books reach usually like two years. Um, this yes. particular book being like five years, it literally felt like mm-hmm. I was trying to put lightning into a jar. There was a couple of times where <laughs> I thought, I can't do this. This story is way too big for me. Um, but I ended up, I was originally two POVs and then it switched to one and that made life significantly easier for me. But yeah. um, so I usually do like about 10 months worth of research with this particular book. I have um, over 100 nonfiction books that I use, um, including one that came from 1945 that was published for the Polish government in exile in England that like was amazing and like falling apart and smells incredible. Oh, um, my God. <laughs> And, uh, and I had like over 15 spiral bound notebooks that were completely filled with handwritten notes. I went to, um, so I, I did the research for, um, I, you, I think I did it like about like seven months. And then I went to Poland and then I did more research. And then after all that research is when I put together my character chart, um, because I really need to know so much of the background of the country first. And then after I had my characters, I made my plot. And then um, I wrote half of it, and I found all the amazing details because I never stop researching. I'm sure you're the same way. Oh yeah, I will research all the way up to copy edits, and um, so I found this amazing um, details about uh, the librarians and and all of the sort of subterfuge that they were involved in, and I threw the entire book away and started over, um, which was a little bit scary. Oh, that was so scary. And I read it, uh, and then I sent it to my editor. So, yeah. How about yours? What was your process? Oh, this book. So
2: I, and I, I came up with the notion for this book like years before I started writing it. Um, so, like that, you know, that weekend that I had in New York where I was going to all the conservation labs. That was in 2019, I want to say. And, you know, I was all set to kind of go on this book. And then I set it aside to write what became my second book, The Last Grand Duchess. And by the way, too, so good. (laughs) Thank you, thank you. Um, But this idea was constantly like kind of bubbling in the back of my head. And I was like very excited about the idea. So yeah, like the research was like ludicrous. You know, like you and I, I feel like we are kindred spirits in the research. world where it's like my, my whole apartment was just like taken over by sources and you know, I had Rose Vallon's diary, so I was like muddling along with my like very, very poor French, reading those and, you know, getting into these art conservation manuals and art forgery manuals, because of course oh forgery is part of this book too. Um, and then I ended up having this whole complication about the method of forging, so I had to kind of learn about how to develop paint. And so my character is like, yeah, anyway. You know I that very I well.
1: And I can tell that all the research that you put into it, it just all conveys so wonderfully in a story.
2: Thank you so much. Thank you. But, um, you know, so it was all kind of pulled together that research get going. This is actually the first book where my characters are, my two main characters are, are fictional. Um, so that was kind of a different process as well, because like my first two books, all of the characters in those books are real. And so you've kind of got like a template to work on. This, it was like the training wheels came off and I'm like, oh, I have to come up with like their entire backstory. (laughs) How does that influence who they are now? And how can, you know, like, who are their parents? What are their childhood traumas? Like getting into like the kind of the really minute details that are not in the history books and that you have to just kind of come up with off the top of your head, that was a whole, that was a whole big process i mean i loved it i absolutely loved it um like one of my characters it was i, I remember having this like moment with her uh Fabienne, she's my other main character where i was trying to kind of get a sense of her and it, it wasn't coming it wasn't coming it wasn't coming i built her kind of backstory in my mind so it's like i knew who she was i knew xyz i knew she was a widow i knew like all of these bits she was an artist but I couldn't get her voice. And um, I I would kind of like, I went to, uh, I went to our our Facebook group of author friends. And I kind of like, you know, I was talking about the fact I couldn't find this character. And one of our mutual friends, Kate Quinn said, uh, find her perfume. And so I was like, oh, that's a good idea. Yeah, so I went, uh, you know, I went to Sephora and I went through probably, 75 perfume samples. And I was like, nope, this isn't it, this isn't it. Nope, doesn't smell like her, doesn't smell like her, doesn't smell like her. And the poor person who was helping me out, like, (sighs) she must've thought I was insane, but (laughs) I kind of was like going through, going through and realized she wouldn't be wearing perfume because as a new widow, like Mm -hmm. she has been recently bereaved, she would be wearing her husband's cologne
1: instead. yeah. Yeah yeah such a good job on her character development just like even you know with her family and i I really really absolutely love that like i felt like i could just feel her when i was reading her character so
2: oh my gosh oh my gosh well i felt the same way about your characters like just everybody in that book was so beautifully like brought to life and you know and, and and just the diversity of experiences that these characters have in these in your book It was just unbelievable. So thank you. I just really appreciate it. Like I said, I mean, I think it was in the first, I I actually, I texted you, I think, in the first, I was reading like the first two chapters of the book and something momentous happens to one of the characters. I'm not gonna say what it is, (laughs) but I sent you a note, I was like,
1: oh my God,
2: oh! Lying in bed, sobbing over the fate of one of your characters, it's just, oh yeah you are an absolute master of the craft madeline it's thank
1: you so much i really appreciate that and and i love so much that we do get to read each other's books before they come out it really isn't that such a treat of being an author because it's like i know like these are these are the kind of i love historical fiction historical fiction is my favorite since i opened a laura Ingalls wilder book when i was a little girl and i have been like hook line and sinker ever since. And like, you know, getting to read like your book before it came out and like, and then getting to talk to people about it, like, oh my gosh, I'm reading this amazing book right now. And then like yeah. getting them all excited for it. It's just, it really is just such a magical part of being an author. We really have like the best job in the world.
2: <laughs> we do. We do. We honestly do. It's amazing.
1: Well, yeah.
2: It's been a lovely conversation. it um,
1: so wonderful chatting with yeah. you. Thanks so much. Thanks very so much for this, this catch up. Um, yeah. we'll see you later thank you guys so much for tuning in take care thank you, thanks everybody
0: thank you for listening please visit alwaysauthors.com to learn about our other episodes Always Authors is an exclusive production of Atomic Focus Entertainment